This morning, we will be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When I believe that the Lord wanted us to go through the letters of Paul to this church in Thessalonica, uh, I wanted to go through it uh, chapter by chapter. And uh, it's been going well as, as far as we as far as we know. But if there was one chapter that I would love to break down even more deeply, it would be this chapter, First Thessalonians chapter 4. For it is in this chapter that uh, Paul uh, reminds the church of uh, the promise that Jesus himself made to come and to gather us together, in fact, to snatch us out of this world uh, and to take us to be where he is, uh, there will we be also. Uh, and of course, we'll get to that passage in just a moment. But to uh, uh, prepare for <clears throat> this study here in First Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, I, I wanted to mention that uh, <clears throat> just recently, as a matter of fact, this past Thursday, Friday and Saturday, uh, there was a, uh, uh, a Great uh, Lakes uh, Pastors Conference in Appleton, Wisconsin, one that I've been associated with for the last few years. But uh, this year... Uh, the focus was on occupying until Jesus comes, and all the speakers were, of course, uh, uh, participating in, in a very live stream event, just like uh, we're doing now, uh, all remotely from their own homes and all. Uh, and two of my friends, uh, one Chris Quintana and uh, the other Gary Ka, had spoken uh, on the passage, or at least uh, Chris did, on the passage in Luke chapter 21, uh, where Jesus uh, uh, is speaking of the end times. And uh, one thing that Gary brought up, uh, generally speaking, was this issue of what is taking place today. Is, uh, if, if, if we are being spiritually and biblically uh, discerning, we realize that what is happening today is a global conditioning. There is a global conditioning taking place. But... In the text that uh, that Chris brought up in uh, Luke chapter 21, verses 25 down through verse 28, he said, And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, <clears throat> excuse me, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. We see this happening today. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> whether somebody believes this to be an exercise or the very beginnings of a greater conditioning, these are the things that are happening in preparation for what the world today wants and what the enemy today wants as a new world order, a new world religion, new world government, new world monetary system, and a new world leader, a single leader, not the God who created the heavens and the earth. But there was mention by Jesus himself in that very same gospel in verse 36, where he said, After all of this, watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. So, in that respect, we see then what Jesus is saying about the times in which we're living, that there is this time that is coming that we will be accounted worthy to escape all these things. That is, those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
in the last two chapters of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, the apostle gives practical lessons on how the church is to walk, how the church is to live, in other words, as believers, while the day of Christ's return for the church approaches. Now, biblically speaking, the acting or the action of walking is a constant analogy to believers of lives lived out by faith in Jesus Christ. We can go all the way back, if you will, to the days of Abraham and throughout Scripture. For examples, Genesis chapter 17, where it says in verse 1, And when Abram, or Abram, uh, was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me. That means live your life out before me and be thou perfect or complete. In, in, a, in a different perspective, uh, we see the word walk in Psalm 1 verse 1, where the psalmist says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. So this issue of walking is a very important biblical aspect. Walking is one of the sub-themes of, of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, where he, where he says, and I'll just give you the statements that he makes, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Uh, walk not as other Gentiles walk. Walk in love. Walk as children of light. Walk circumspectly. If you remember, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians was about the members of that church being saved. Chapter 2 focused on their nurturing. And chapter 3 focused on them being established in the faith. So there is that progression of understanding. It was a very young church. Paul was there weeks. But in, that, in, in those weeks that he was with them, this is what he made very clear to them. Their life as believers their salvation, their nurturing, and their establish, uh, being established in maturity and continually being established in maturity. For what reason? The Lord Jesus was coming. And he makes mention of the coming of Jesus at the end of every chapter of chapter 1. Or I should say of, of, of 1 Thessalonians, not of chapter 1, but of 1 Thessalonians. Every chapter ends with the mention of of the coming of Jesus Christ. So in our text today, <clears throat> Paul will give practical instructions for those new believers to live or to walk to please God and not themselves. And the two main words that Paul uses are walk and abound. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk. In other words, how you are to live your Christian life, how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So Paul immediately just focuses his attention on their walking in holiness. Walking in holiness, living out their lives in holiness. And the foundation for the practical lessons in this chapter 
are found in the previous two verses, which are the last two verses of chapter 3. Notice, if you will, in verses 12 and 13. And the Lord make you increase and abound, there's that word again, abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end, or which means the goal of which he may establish or establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That we as believers are to be holy is not a suggestion. That we are to be holy is not a suggestion. In fact, it is a command. To think that we have achieved now the highest level of holiness, that is a fallacy. That is a misleading notion. Because you see, if a person is satisfied where they are in their Christian walk, that more than likely shows that they are stagnant in their walk. Certainly not growing. Well, consider again, if you will, the fact that Paul focused on their salvation, on their nurturing, and on their being established, which means they were being established day by day in their maturity. They were maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ every day. They weren't achieving that on this earth, as none of us are achieving the highest level or the highest standard of of holiness that we can. No, and that's why it's a fallacy to think that you have achieved or re- arrived to that highest level of holiness. Now, to talk about this this way may seem harsh, but it is true. On this side of heaven, we should be growing every day and moving forward and maturing in our faith. And again, why does Paul say abound more and more? Because you haven't arrived. You haven't reached. We continue on. Until the Lord comes. So Paul is urging these believers and us to increase and to abound in our walk with the Lord. So Paul puts now all of this into perspective, yet not here and not using the walking analogy, but in fact, the running analogy. A running analogy that he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in verses 24 through 27. Where he says, know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run, he says, run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for mastery, one that exercises daily and worketh these things out in his life, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things, which means he is exercising self-restraint. He knows what to put into his body. He knows how to use his body. He knows what he shouldn't put into his body. He knows very clearly what not to put into his mind and to put into his body at all in preparation for this race. So then he says, now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I. Now he uses an athletic or a boxing Uh, a metaphor here I therefore so run not as uncertainly so fight I not as one that beateth the air but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection lest that by any means when I have preached to others I myself should be a castaway which means I you know if I if I don't do these things then I'm, I'm going to be disqualified so a fighter gets knocked down when he lets his guard down And we as believers can be knocked down by the enemy as we fall into sin when we let our guard down and don't fight 
to win the race or the match. And when that happens, we can become disqualified from service unto the Lord. So, so we need to be careful, and we need to be wise every day in our walk. We, and, and this is the reason why we can't have a, a one- or two-day mindset as believers. One- or two-day mindset being, you know, uh, you know I, well, I go to church every Sunday. Yeah, but what do you do the rest of the time? Well, I go to church every Wednesday and Sunday. Well, that might be a little better, but what are you doing every day? Are you spending time with the Lord every day? Are you reading the scriptures every day? Are you growing in the love of the word? Are you growing in the love of the church? Are you growing by going out and, and, and proclaiming the gospel? Are you, are you sharing the love of Christ with people? I mean, th- this is the exercise of our faith. So as I said before, these are not suggestions that Paul was giving, but commandments from the word of the Lord. Coming from Jesus himself. Now, some might, some might say, well, I thought that we were under grace now. Not the law. Well, we are. We are under grace. And therefore, these are not laws for us to follow to, us, to attain some kind of righteousness. But they are laws that we follow out of love for the Lord. Scriptures call it the, the, the royal law of love. Jesus emphasized love to his disciples many times and especially toward the cross. But then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, as we read on, notice what Paul goes on to say. He says, for this is the will of God. So now this is where our, our antennas should come up to be able to hear what, what God is saying uh, through Paul. For this is the will of God. Even your sanctification. You, you're being set aside, or, or should say being set apart unto God. Your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. So now, being set apart unto God, being set apart from sin. In, in this particular case, from fornication or sexual sin. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Uh, that kind of coincides with what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 9, that, that we need to know how to subject our body to bring it under subjection. You know how to possess the vessel in sanctification and honor. This vessel that God has given to us, not in the lust of concupiscence. That's a very you know, big, long $1.50 word there, but concupiscence means longing for what is forbidden. Not in the lust of concupiscence or longing for what is forbidden, forbidden, even as the Gentiles which, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. Now, we're going to bring the context of all of that here together in just a moment. But the great danger and the temptation in Thessalonica was immorality and sexual impurity. Lust, in other words, lust and selfishness prevailed in the moral climate of the Roman Empire and the pagan religious systems existing in the larger cities. And you know, we, we could say there was a religious system, yes, but it was pagan, and in the pagan religious system, they used a lot of sexual immorality as part of their religious rites. So for God's people now that had come out of much of that, for God's people, his will for their lives was sanctification. Now, 
The word sanctification is the word hagiosmos. It comes from the, from the Greek word hagios, which means holy. Sanctification means to be set apart. To be holy is to be set apart unto God. To be set apart from the things of the world. They, as we, speaking of the church there in, in Thessalonica, they, as we, were to be set apart from sin and set apart unto God. Specifically, Paul focused on sexual purity and that they were to stay completely away from any thought or behavior that goes against God's word in regard to sexual sin. Now they, as we, were to live in holiness and purity by God's power. And by the way, that's the only way we can do this. It is by God's power, not by our own. So the controlling of their own bodies and holiness and honor was by being different from the unsaved. In other words, obeying God's word and then trusting in the power of God in us. Now, Paul made a very strong declaration, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 now. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, he, he makes this very strong declaration. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters. Now, interestingly enough, every time sexual sins are mentioned in lists like this, it is always, it seems like it's, it's, uh, it's always joined together with idolatry. So that's something to think about here. But uh, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, and I think we know what that means, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. But notice what he says to this church in Corinth. He says, and such were some of you. Some of you had gone through all of these sins. But you are washed. And I want to emphasize the, the present tense that he uses here. But ye are washed. You are washed. But ye are sanctified. You are set apart. But ye are justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things, Paul would go on to say, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient, which means all things are not beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And there's good reason for what he's saying here, as we'll get to in just a moment. But in verse 6 of our text, going back to verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says in effect that it is impossible to sin in this manner without wronging others. Think about that for just a moment. Verse 6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. So here in verse 6, he's saying, listen. Here's the context. Even those sins that he's mentioning, the context is that there will be those who will be affected, that there will be those who will be defrauded, as it were. And so comes the exhortation in the next two verses, in verses 7 and 8. Where Paul says, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. I mean, that, that, that's a drastic contrast that he gives. But notice, 
He didn't call us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. I think that that should awaken those people who think that now when you come to to Christ, that you you can pretty much do whatever you want. No, he didn't call us to uncleanness. He called us to holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man. See, whatever we do and, and, and whoever, whomever it is that we affect in these things, we, we don't just despise man. We are actually despising God. He says, he therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who has also given unto us his Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying to the church, and not just in Thessalonica, and not just in Corinth, what Paul is saying to the church is that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been called to a higher standard. And that higher standard is holiness. It is not something that we try to achieve to be proud of. It is something that we can only come to when we humble ourselves. When we subject ourselves to the God who created us. To subject ourselves to the God who saved us. To the God who has changed us. And who has filled us with his Holy Spirit. We've been called to this higher standard. But the Lord did not leave us to our own strength in this. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to his mercy he has saved us. See, so even in that, it isn't just our strength. In fact, no, our strength is dead. We now have been given his strength. Christ has come and filled us, as we learned in, first, in the first chapter of Colossians. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And then what we've learned throughout the, the Gospels and even in the book of Acts. God has blessed us and anointed us Jesus has baptized us in the Holy Spirit. He has not only given us a spirit that comes upon us and alongside of us, but who comes in us. He did not leave us to our own strength in any of these things. Not by power nor by might, but by his spirit, saith the Lord. One great lesson we can learn of that is found in 1 Peter. And now Peter the Apostle chimes in here and he says in verse 13 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. And here it is. Notice this phrase. And hope to the end, which means hope to the very goal of your life in Christ on this earth. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, how we need God's undeserved favor. But there's more to God's grace than just his undeserved favor. There is his great mercy. There is his great love. And there is his strength that he gives us to deal with all the things that we have to deal with on this earth until the, until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. But notice, he says, Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, notice, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, in all manner of conduct, in everything that you do, be ye holy, because the one who called you is holy. Now, verse 16 says, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, how does this all fit in? 
Because the one who has now taken over our lives, the one who has now come into our life, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit, is now with us. And the one who is holy is in us. Therefore, we are to be holy as he is holy. But we now receive our strength from the one who is deeply and truly in us and is holy. So this is now the issue of walking in holiness. But now Paul goes on and he deals with walking in love. As he says in verses 9 and 10 of our text in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, but as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are all in Macedonia, or which are, all, which are in all Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. So you've been taught about the love of God, but you don't stop at a certain level and say, well, I've, you know, I, I'm just filled with the love of God. You're to increase more and more. We are to continue to grow in the love of the Lord. Now, this church truly was taught by Paul in a very short amount of time a lot of things. And one of those things was the love that Christ had taught his disciples before he went to the cross. How many times do we see the mention of love in chapters 13 through 16 of, of uh, the Gospel of John, for example. But here in these verses, Paul admonishes the Thessalonian believers to walk in love and to continue to grow in the unconditional love, the agapao or the agape love of Christ toward others. It is clear that the evidence of their love was seen by many others as it should be for us as well. It shouldn't just be seen within the walls of a, of a so-called church. It needs to be seen in the world that God has called us to be his examples of. This was, this was certainly a basic principle that Paul taught them early on. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul would say this. He says, And hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. There's the Holy Spirit again. Shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. This is a reminder to us as believers that we can allow things sometimes to get in the way of receiving God's love. Or we, we could, get, or, or we could let things get, get in the way of expressing God's love to others. And so the need to know always that this love is given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. See, it, it, we have to be very careful not to say, well, you know, I love you, uh, and then some days say to some, the same person, uh, I don't love you as much as I loved you the other day. When we love one another in the love of Christ, we are loving them because we have the love of God in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul was saying is, hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So we have to always remember the source and the supply of everything we have, the strength of our Lord and the love of our God in us. And so the need to always know that this love is given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. You know, John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, He that saith he is in the light, 
and, and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. And there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness has bl- hath blinded his eyes. So here's something that we need to understand and we need to remember. Let's, let's, not, let's not try to rationalize our involvement in all of these things. Let's, let's not think that we can justify our behavior, which at times is our fleshly behavior. So what is the solution in, in all of this? Very simply, we need to repent before God. John also, in 1 John 1, 9, of course, he says, confess your sins before God. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Restore then. Not just repent, but restore. Restore your relationship. Restore your fellowship with your brothers and your sisters in the Lord. If there has been any struggle or trial, restore that relationship. That goes way beyond just saying, well, yeah, I'll always love you, but, you know, I can't like you very much anymore. No. That's not the attitude that Jesus went to the cross with. Restore your fellowship and your relationship with your brothers and sisters. Maybe they've done something, but you can forgive. Maybe you've done something and they forgive, then you restore. I mentioned the things that Jesus taught his disciples. In John 13, notice what he said in verses 34 and 35. And I think this is very key for us to understand these things. Jesus said to his disciples on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane and eventually to the cross, he said, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, notice, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. How had Jesus and how would Jesus love them? By giving of himself completely. The world would hate Jesus. The world hates Jesus today. The world, the flesh, and the devil, by the way, hate Jesus. But what does it say in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus goes on here in John 13 in verse 35 to say, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. This is how the world will know. This is how everyone will know that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ if ye have love one to another. That love begins here in the church. It begins with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But God has called us to love the world in the sense that we are to love them into the kingdom of God. We are to love them into the knowledge of Christ. No matter what they say to us, no matter what they do to us. The world is turning greatly against the church today. It's turning greatly against Jesus and against the believer and against Christians. It is happening. It's happening, and, and, and it's been happening for 2,000 years. It's not a new thing. The enemy is, is, is truly conditioning people today. I mentioned that early on. 
There's a conditioning going on. Eventually, there will be a, a desire for a one world rule, a world leader, I should say. We know him from the scriptures as, as Antichrist or the beast. Jesus said that they're, they're, going to, they're, going to, they're going to choose him over Jesus eventually. And that's what's, where we're moving on right now. But here's what we have to understand as believers in Jesus Christ today. The world is watching us. The world is watching us. And what do they see? What is the world seeing of us? I pray that they see the love of Christ in us. I pray that they see the love of Christ from the cross to the resurrection in us. So let's walk in love. Let us continue to walk in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we need to walk wisely, but we need to walk in love. And then we're called to walk in honesty. We are called to walk in honesty. Going back to verses 11 and 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says in that, you study to be quiet. Study to be quiet. And to do your own business. To work with your own hands. As we commanded you. That you may walk honestly toward them that are without, which means outside of the church or outside of the body of Christ. And that you may have lack of nothing. Now I want to talk a little bit in just a moment about the conditions of the time of Paul and the Thessalonian church. But notice what he says, that you study to be quiet, to do your own business. First of all, Paul said that they were to aim, they were to aspire to living quiet lives. Now, actually, to study is, 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 to, is, is to be continually diligent in aiming towards something. In this case, toward quiet lives. What does it mean to have a quiet life? Well, first of all, it was not to be like the Gentiles or their generation in their life at the very same time that they were living. The Gentiles were anxious about things. The Gentiles were worried. They were given to unpredictable change, which uh, there's a, a word, mercurial. <laughs> they were given to unpredictable change, and they were restless. That is not living a quiet life. They were unstable. And we see a lot of instability today. And I can tell you this, this whole lockdown and this whole uh, you know, stay-at-home policy is, is, is causing a lot of instability in homes today. We're not seeing a lot of it being reported on the news media. There are families going through all kinds of changes, especially families that are not in Christ. I mean, it might be happening to some in, in, even in the church today, but you know, we, we need to, that's where we need to come back to the Lord. But there, this instability is, is not living a quiet life. If we understand quiet from the, from the biblical perspective, we as believers should be at peace. That's living a quiet life. We should be at peace knowing that God is in control. 
We have to submit to the understanding that God knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end at all times. Nothing surprises God. Nothing surprises what's going on in the world because he's already seen it happen. And then think about this. In a very specific way, he has seen what has happened in your life and in mine before it happens. Which can bring us to the point where we have to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith and come to the Lord and say, Lord, I know that you've seen things already. I need to, I need to just lay my heart down before you now and trust that you'll give me the strength to do differently than what I've been doing or whatever. But we should be at peace knowing that God is in control even of all this insanity that's going on today. And then as for minding our own business, and again, when you, when you go back to the text and, and you see what he says in verse 11, that you study to be quiet and to do your own business. That means to do or to mind your own business. So as for minding our own business, Paul uses this word for do or mind that means attend to with ambition. Attend to your business with ambition. In other words, have an honest means without being dependent on others. Have an honest means or an honest job, if you will, or an honest work environment or an honest profession, as it were, without being dependent on others. I mean, this includes not encouraging anyone to a careless way of life. I believe that we've been doing that in many cases, in many uh, you know, liberal progressive uh, administrations of the past, and, and even still today with, with, with even conservative type of administrations. Sometimes people are being encouraged to a careless way of life. That they don't have to work because somebody's going to take care of them. In that, in that respect, the state, as it were. Well, that is a far cry from what we see in our nation today of encouraging dependence upon government and the means which others make. So now here's where we need to go back to where Paul was and where the Thessalonian church was and what, what the conditions were at their time and, and in their time. And I want you not to forget that they lived under a non-welfare state. And what I like to call, they lived under a non-welfare state coronavirus of their own. They had a coronavirus then. We call it the totalitarianism of the Roman Empire. That wasn't there to take care of the people, but to overbear upon them. To be overbearing. We use a new word today, overreaching. We believe that some states and some cities and local governments are overreaching with some of these uh, crazy restrictions and whatnot. I know I'm saying things that, you know, some people say, be careful what you say. I'm not care. I don't worry about it. I, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care about the world. But nonetheless, that's what's happening. And even in that day, Paul still said, hey, you work. In fact, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, he writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, he says, for even when we were with you, now remember what they were living under. He said, for even when we were with you, this we commanded that you, that commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. <laughs> wow. In other words, you work. Don't depend upon somebody else. 
For we hear that there are some, uh, there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies, depending on other people for their lunch, depending on other people for their uh, means. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work. Quietness, which means be honest, have an honest living, have an honest wage, have an honest job. He says, with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Boy, that's not what we heard a few years ago. When the former president said, you didn't build that. When honest people with their own hands built certain things. And they're trying to change this mindset of of the American people to say, oh, listen. uh, We'll tell you who to feed. We'll tell you what to do. Wow. That was the kind of situation that they lived in in Thessalonica. But Paul said, you work. And you eat your own bread. And you be honest in what you do. Listen, even to Timothy, Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. He said, but if any provide not for his own. And remember, Timothy would have gone to, to, uh, to Ephesus. and was, the, was there in Ephesus. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Wow. Interesting. If any provide not for his own. And still, still, let's remember this one thing. What John said, and John's not contradicting here. But remember this one thing in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, that John himself said, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and sheddeth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? And there are times. When the Lord puts it on our hearts to help those who are, who, who are for, for whatever reason, are struggling. You know, we can debate this whole issue of stimulus uh, checks that are coming to people. And if you've gotten one because you needed it, praise the Lord. Use it as unto the Lord. Use it for your families, whatever it is. You know, we, we can deal with all of the, the political issues later. Because there are some of us here. There are some who have have lost their jobs, aren't working today. All right, so if it comes, it's a gift of the Lord. Always remember that. It's not the gift of the government, it's the gift of the Lord. But there are times when people are suffering, and we see it, and we have, we are to give. That's why John says, if you have the world's good and see your brother have need, and, and you shut up your bowels, you shut up your compassion from the one who needs, how does the the love of God dwell in you? Is what he's saying. So let's remember also this, that the unsaved are watching us, even in that. The unsaved are watching us, and we are to be examples to them of what the Lord has done in our lives. And so let us be a good influence to the world around us. Let us walk in holiness. Let us walk in love. Let us walk in honesty and also Let us walk in hope. Walking in hope. Because every day between now and the coming of Jesus, we should be waiting expectantly.
for Jesus to come because he said, I'm coming. And I can come at any moment. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. I've spoken on this passage many times and, and dealt with the issue of the rapture of the church before the great tribulation period of seven years that is coming yet, coming. We're not in the tribulation yet, I can assure you we're not. We're moving toward it, but we're not in it. Notice what Paul said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which, is, which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the, word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. We're not going to go before those who have uh, already died in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, they will uh, rise first. Because in verse 16 it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Caught up. Harpazo. Snatched away. Caught up. Together with them in the clouds. You hear the word together a lot today? Have you, have you noticed that, you know, on TV and the commercials and everything? Oh, almost every commercial has to do with, you know, with, 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 the, uh, with the coronavirus and the, and the you know, the you know, the, the pandemic and all, and all the commercials are, listen, we're, we're alone together. We're alive together. We're together here. We're, you know, in your own homes. No, we're not together. But we as believers are together. And we will be together when Jesus comes. And he says, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord together with him. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain. We who are still on the earth waiting for the coming of the Lord. We will be caught up together. And wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That's comforting to know what the Lord's plans are for the church and for the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, many of the people in the church of Thessalonica wondered whether dead fellow Christians and loved ones would be left behind at the return of Jesus Christ. That was their concern. But Paul was indeed speaking of bodily resurrection, and obviously the church was taught this by Paul. So Paul, in a very short amount of time, not only taught them about their salvation and nurtured them in their salvation and, and established them in their maturity in Christ and in the Word and in love and all kinds of other things. He said, listen, Jesus is coming, and you need to be ready, and you need to know. It is important to note, by the way, and, I, and this is just a side note here because of time, but it's important to note that Paul was not dealing with or teaching something called soul sleep, which is a doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventism, but a lot of people have thought that that's what Paul was dealing with. But listen, there's enough things that we see in Scripture to say, no, no of course not. It's not teaching soul sleep. In other words, the soul is asleep until the Lord comes. No, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, notice what he said. He said, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Well, if you're present with the Lord, guess what? You're going to be very much alive. And you're awaiting your body. The body, that, 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 that uh, incorruptible body that God has promised you. But you're willing rather to be absent from the body, yes, away from the body, but present with the Lord. Well, that's not soul sleep. That's being alive. 
in Christ. Philippians 1, verse 23, Paul said in a, in a personal way, he said, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ. Listen, we're not going to be with Christ asleep. <sighs> you know, we're going to be with Christ alive, which is far better, he said. And then, of course, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 10, he said, Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Live together, alive, with him, not asleep. So God's truth about this event was revealed to Paul by the word of the Lord. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he calls it a mystery. This is the mystery. Not all shall sleep. But those who believe will be made alive. And he talks about the corruptible inheriting incorruption. And so on and so forth. The mortal inheriting immortality. So, there are a number of allusions as well. Allusions or being mentions that are found in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, supporting the rapture of the church. You know, we can go back to people like Enoch and, uh, and so on, Elijah. Uh, but, uh, but there are just a number of allusions supporting the rapture of the church. Now, Paul believed that he, uh, um, let me not forget Noah, because we'll have to count him as well. But Paul believed that he and his readers might well be alive when the Lord returned for his church. We see that in the language that he uses. Because he says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel with a trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. First then we which are alive. So he was ready. You see, we which are alive. Not they uh, in about 2,000 years. We which are alive. We're looking. We're waiting. So what... What that teaches us is that the rapture was imminent even then. Which means, in other words, it could take place at any moment. And this is what the apostle looked for even then. We which are alive and remain. And he wanted others to look for it. For he knew that would bring comfort and strength to them as they lived in a wicked and hopeless world. Just like we do today. So let me give you a few scriptures that uh, pertain to Jesus' coming. And how we need to be encouraged by it and comforted by these things as we look to the day of Christ approaching. For example, Paul's speaking to Titus or writing to Titus in Titus 2 verses 11 through 15 where he says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared, hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. What was he saying in 1 Thessalonians 4? How we are to walk in holiness before the coming of the Lord Jesus. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's how we want to be before Jesus comes, looking for that blessed hope. Looking for the blessed hope. Always looking. Always watching. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. The glorious appearing. Which is the appearing to us who believe. That's why that thought is separate from the second coming of Christ, which is another coming. But we'll talk about that another time. And then he says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort. And rebuke with all authority. 
This is a doctrine, in other words, that we need to exhort people and challenge people and encourage people and warn them is something that is going to happen and even to rebuke with all authority. Because there's a lot of people today that they don't want to hear anything about the rapture of the church. They think that the rapture of the church is just a bunch of hogwash. It's in the scriptures. And it's, not, it's more than just a, a doctrine. In fact, I don't consider it a doctrine. I consider it a prophecy that is going to be fulfilled. That doesn't mean it's not a doctrine, but I'm just saying that so, so many people want to classify it, you know, as a doctrine and, 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 and marginalize it in that respect. No, it's something that Jesus said, I'm going to come. Paul said, Jesus said, he's going to come. And so we wait for that coming of the Lord. And then John, and this is where Jesus said it in John 14, verses 1 through 6. He said, let not your heart be troubled. What is he saying? Hey, be comforted with this. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we, we know not whither thou goest, and, and how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What is Jesus doing when he is gathering us together? So that where he is, there will we be also. He's taking us unto the Father. And who can come? No man cometh unto the Father except by Jesus. See, this, is, this is a connection, I think, to the rapture that some people seem to, seem to miss a little bit. But can you, can you see then the context? First he says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Then I'm coming again and gather you to myself take you where, where I am, there you will be also. In other words, he's coming for his bride. According to Jewish law and tradition, he's going to be building his house there for his bride, preparing that place. And when the father says, which is part of the, the tradition, when the father says, go get your bride, he's going to come and get the bride and take us to the father's house because that is where they will be. So there's an interesting connection there with what Jesus said when he says, I am the way. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. Lastly, look, uh, Luke 21, what we read earlier uh, as we began this study today. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. There are signs even today. Uh, we, 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 we've noticed a few things uh, differently in our, in our uh, spring sky. Uh, I don't want to go into any great detail, but there's certain uh, planets and, and even stars that are a lot brighter than they were before. Uh, you can kind of look all of that up, but nonetheless, those are little signs. There are bigger signs, actually, that are happening. Uh, and upon the earth, here's the most important part, upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity. And that's what's happening now. The seas and the waves roaring, Men's heart failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then 
shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And notice what Jesus said. And when these things begin to come to pass. I think we're seeing a lot of things beginning to come to pass today. When these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Look up and lift up your heads. Don't slouch down. Stand with confidence in the God who saved you and the Savior who has given of himself for you, who has loved you with an everlasting love. And your redemption is drawing nigh. It can happen any moment. Now's a good time. Now would be a great time. But if not now, when it does happen, oh, how it will be. The church gathered together in Christ with him forever and ever.